0: Well, it's that time of year, and when we buy a Christmas gift for somebody, we like to get something that they like, don't we? You know, I hear people in the stores, do you think they'll like this? Do you think he'll like this? And that's what we do. We want to get them something that they will use, something that's in keeping with who they are, their unique interest, and and what would bring them joy. Because all of us know what it means to be on the other side, we receive a gift that we put in a drawer or in a closet never to be worn, or put on a shelf, never to be used. And at least around here, we can use it for next year's White Elephant Gift Party. (laughs) And don't look at me like you've never recycled a gift (laughs) in your life. Yeah. Well, over the next two weeks before Christmas, we'll be taking an in-depth look at the significance of the three gifts presented to the Lord Jesus by the Magi. The gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And this morning, we'll be looking at the gift of gold. And we're going to be answering the questions, what does each particular gift say about the Lord Jesus Christ? What does it say about who he is and what he will do and what he has done? And this morning, we're going to be looking at a gift fit for a king, a gift fit for a king. Now, in Matthew chapter 2, there are two kings mentioned. It's a tale of two kings and really a tale of two kingdoms as well. And both of these kings bore the same title. They bore the title, the King of the Jews. The Magi arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is he who has been born King of the Jews? And the problem was that Herod the king had already been given that exact same title, King of the Jews. Herod was the vassal king of the Romans, and he had been named King of the Jews by Mark Antony and Octavian. Octavian was later known as, and is known in the Gospels, as Caesar Augustus. So it was Caesar Augustus and Mark Antony that named him king of the Jews. And so we're going to see a contrast between two different kings of the Jews here. And it's also a contrast in the clash and conflict of kingdoms. A clash between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of heaven. A clash between all the kingdoms of this world, which constantly clash, and all of them clashing and in conflict against the kingdom of heaven. So now the main problem concerning Herod the king was that he was not Jewish at all. He, 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 was, he was king of the Jews, but he was not a Jew. He was an Edomite. He was a descendant of Esau. Remember Jacob and Esau? And so Herod was not Jewish at all. And the Edomites hated the Jewish people and the feeling was mutual. Now Herod's father Antipater had converted to Judaism, but more than likely it was for political reasons. After the Romans conquered Judea, Julius Caesar named Herod's father Antipater as governor of Judea to rule on behalf of the Romans. And so to put it in the perspective today, the Edomites were Arabs. They they were descendants of, of Esau And then the other Arabs were the descendants of Ishmael. And so it would be like an Arab ruler ruling Israel today and Judea today. And it's just the same kind of conflict that uh, we would have today. And Antipater, once he was named governor of Judea, he named his son Herod as prefect or magistrate over Galilee. And so both Judea and Galilee were ruled by Edomites, Arabs. Now, after Antipater's death, he was assassinated by the Jews. A people called the Parthians from the east invaded Galilee and Judea. Now, it's important to know who the Parthians are because they ruled the region from where the Magi came from. The Parthians ruled what had been the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire. It encompassed all the land between the Mediterranean Sea and China and India, and from the south, it was from the, the Red Sea, all the, the, the Persian Gulf, all the way clear up almost into the Balkans and the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. So this was a large empire. The Parthian Empire stretched over a million square miles. And so I just happened to look up on Google Maps, what are, what are those countries today that this mighty Parthian Empire ruled? It'd be Armenia, Iraq, Iran, Georgia, eastern Turkey, eastern Syria, Azerbaijan, Turkmenistan, Kajikistan, Pakistan, Kuwait, the Persian Gulf Coast of Saudi Arabia, and then Bahrain, Qatar, and United Arab immigrants. You know, so that's, that's a large land. And the Romans went to war with the Parthians, and in one battle in Armenia, just one battle, 20,000 Roman soldiers were killed, 10,000 were captured and enslaved, and 10,000 more escaped to the west. Not even the mighty Roman Empire could defeat the Parthians. So when the mighty Parthian army invaded Galilee and then came down in Judea, Herod, the prefect of Galilee, first fled to Egypt, and then he went to Rome. He got out of Dodge. Now in Rome, Mark Antony and Octavian, Caesar Augustus, were greatly interested in defeating the Parthians, as you would imagine. And once again, controlling of Judea and Galilee, hoping to get a foothold so they could someday maybe defeat the Parthians. And they saw in Herod the man to do it. And so they in the Roman Senate proclaimed Herod king of the Jews, and with Rome's help, Herod raised an army and began the long military campaign to carve out his kingdom. And so after several years of fighting, Herod finally drove out the Parthians from Judea, Samaria, and Galilee, and parts of Syria, and he began his rule in Jerusalem as king of the Jews. Now, one of the more interesting quirks of history was As Herod took more territory from the Parthians, Mark Antony wanted to keep giving more territory to his lover, Cleopatra, the queen of Egypt. (laughs) It was just kind of an amazing thing. He wanted to give her Jericho, uh, of all places. But Herod was able to stave off the schemes of even Mark Antony. So Herod, during his entire reign, was paranoid about protecting the kingdom that he had built. In spite of Mark Antony, Cleopatra, and a host of other threats that would press in on his kingdom, Herod managed to maintain and sustain Judea's self-rule with himself as king. It was an amazing feat. But Herod was brutal, he was ruthless, he was vindictive, and he was a dangerously high-strung tyrant. He ceaselessly convinced himself that conspiracies were being mounted to destroy him. And he transformed his kingdom into a police state to uncover and crush them. He banned people from meeting in groups. He dispatched police spies among them and required loyalty oaths from them. He had large numbers of his subjects killed for real or imagined disloyalty or dissent. Or because he feared that somehow they might pose a threat to him. Among his victims, he had his, the wife he loved the most, Mariamne, killed. He had three of his own sons killed. Caesar said it's safer to be Herod's pig than his son. And it's a play on word. It's, it's safer to be Herod's uos than his uios, his son. He even had the high priest of Jerusalem killed. The high priest in the temple And that's the point where Herod installed his own high priest. And from that point on until the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, it was whoever ruled Judea, whether Herod or the Romans, that appointed the high priest. And the Romans just auctioned it off. That's how Caiaphas and Ananias and all those guys that we read about in Scripture, that's why they became high priest, because they bought the position from the Romans. But the death of Herod's morbid morbid, morbid insecurity led him to insanity. And so when Magi from the east arrived, asking, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Herod totally freaked out. And Magi had come from Parthia, the same kingdom he had driven out to carve out his own kingdom. So says Matthew in chapter 2, verse 3, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. When Herod was troubled, everybody was troubled. It meant somebody was going to die. In fact, later on his deathbed, Herod was afraid that no one would weep for him at his, his death. And so the other fault in Herod's temperament, besides being paranoid of all these conspiracy theories, was that he had a deep need for being admired. He had a deep need for being appreciated. That's why he rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem for the Jews, He was also an international philanthropist who undertook public service projects in other countries as well as his own. He had aqueducts, temples, markets, colonnades, theaters, and roads built in cities from Damascus to Athens, enhancing the character of many of them and embellishing their appearance. The city of Jerusalem became a marvel of the ancient world. People came from all over the world to see the temple and marvel at all the other buildings in Jerusalem. In fact, Herod rescued the ancient Olympic Games from possible terminal collapse, and he was named president for life. More than anything else, Herod wanted to be the greatest king since Solomon, if not even greater than Solomon. And he wanted the admiration and gratitude of the people, which obviously he never got. So while he was on his deathbed, he had hundreds of the distinguished citizens of Jerusalem arrested and imprisoned. Why? Because no one would mourn for his death. And so he gave orders for these prisoners to be executed the moment he died in order to guarantee that there'd be mourning and weeping in Jerusalem upon his death. And that barbaric act was exceeded in cruelty only by the slaughter of all the male children in Bethlehem and all its environs from two years old and under. Herod hoped to stamp out and kill any threat to his throne especially from the one the Magi said has been born, King of the Jews. So in stark contrast to Herod, we need to turn the corner, don't we? (laughs) There's another King of the Jews mentioned in in chapter 2, the child born in Bethlehem. And before him, the Magi fell to the ground and worshipped him. And opening their gifts, opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So first of all, as we look at gold today, let's look at the significance of giving gold as a gift to a king. And then we'll look at why Christ is worthy of our gifts, worthy of our homage, worthy of our worship as the king of kings. So first of all, I want us to see the significance of gold. Why gold? Why did the Magi bring gold? Throughout history, gold has been considered to be the most precious of metals. And it's the universal symbol of material value and wealth. And so not only was gold valuable, it could be easily fashioned into jewelry and, and other objects and used to adorn buildings and, and uh, all kinds of, of things. And as Solomon was preparing to build the temple of God in Jerusalem, he declared in 1 Chronicles, Now behold, with great pains I have prepared for the house of the Lord 100,000 talents of gold and 1 million talents of silver and bronze and iron beyond weight, for they are in great quantity. Also timber and stone I have prepared, and you may add to them. And so Solomon stockpiled for the temple that that he was going to build, that God said to build the temple. And in today's dollars, and this is just astronomical, I even double-checked the numbers. That's $179 billion worth of gold and silver. In fact, if it was the gross national product of a country today, it would rank 56 of the gross national product of all the countries in the world. And Solomon overlaid the entire inside of the temple with gold. He drew chains of gold across the front of the inner sanctuary. The Ark of the Covenant was, of course, made of gold, but uh, many of the other objects were made of gold or covered with gold or, or made with gold or silver. And so as well as being valuable in adorning the temple... Gold is associated with kings and is a gift fit for a king. We see an example of this in 1 Kings chapter 10. 1 Kings chapter 10, at the, the first verse. Here we have the account of when the queen of Sheba came to visit King Solomon. And when a person had an audience with a king or a queen in ancient days, The person coming before the king or the queen was expected to pay homage by bringing gold and other gifts. And the queen of Sheba really knew how to honor Solomon. 1 Kings verse 1 of of, uh, chapter 10. Now when the queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with difficult questions. See if this guy's as wise as everybody says he is. So she had a list. (laughs) We can only imagine what's on that list. So she came to Jerusalem with a very large retinue with camels carrying spices and very much gold and precious stones. When she came to Solomon, she spoke with him about all that was in her heart. Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was hidden from the king, which he did not explain to her. When the queen of Sheba perceived all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his servants, the attendance of his waiters and their attire, his cupbearers and his stairways by which he went up to the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. Literally in the, the Hebrew it says she was breathless. <laughs> she was breathless. Then she said to the king, it was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. Nevertheless, I did not believe the reports until I came and my eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. You exceed in wisdom and prosperity the report which I heard. How blessed are your men. How blessed are your servants who stand before you continually and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you to set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, therefore he made you king to do justice and righteousness. She gave the king 120 talents of gold and a very great amount of spices and precious stones. Never again did such abundance of spices come in that which the queen of Sheba gave king Solomon. Extreme example of paying homage to a king with the gifts of gold. Maybe this is an extreme example, but all the people who paid homage in this way deemed Solomon worthy of their homage. So let's jump down to, to verse 14 where we see that. Now the weight of gold which came in to Solomon in one year was 66, 666 talents of gold. 666 talents of gold would be $1.5 million of gold in just one year. And then it continues in verse 15. Besides that, from the traders and the wares and the merchants and all the kings of the Arabs... And the governors of the country, King Solomon made 200 large shields of beaten gold, using 600 shekels of gold on each large shield. He made 300 shields of beaten gold, using three minas of gold on each shield, and the king put them in the house of the forests of Lebanon. Moreover, the king made a great throne of ivory and overlaid it with refined gold. There were six steps to the throne, a round top to the throne at its rear, And arms on each side of the seat and two lions standing beside the arms. Twelve lions were standing there on the six steps on the one side and on the other. Nothing like it was made for any other kingdom. All King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold. And all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. None was of silver. It was not considered valuable in the days of Solomon. For the king had at sea the ships of Tarshish with the ships of Hiram. Once every three years, the ships of Tarshish came bringing gold, silver, ivory, and apes and peacocks. So King Solomon became greater than all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. So now we can see a little bit of why the Magi brought bearing gold to the king of kings. So that brings us to why the Magi presented the gold to the child born in Bethlehem. I want to talk a little bit about who the Magi were. Uh, We've talked about who Herod was, who were, were the Magi. In New Testament times, the Magi were known as a priestly tribe of the Persians. They lived east of Judea. They lived in the region around Babylon. That would have been Parthia at the time. But they also lived in the time of Babylon Empire, the Persian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, and then the Parthian Empire. And the word magi or magos in the Greek, it's really an untranslatable word. It's just one we bring across into, into English. It's often rendered wise man. The word magi refers to their tribe, the tribe of the magi. Just like the Levites... They were one, of the, who were one of the tribes of Israel and were the priestly tribe. The Magi were the priestly tribe of the Persians. And like the Levites, they were born into their tribe and born into their priestly responsibilities. So it may be also that like Abraham, the Magi came from the ancient city of Ur, Ur of Chaldea. And this is highly likely because in the book of Daniel, the Magi are referred to as the Chaldeans. Now, the Magi became skilled in astronomy and astrology. In those days, the scientific study of astronomy and how the stars move and, and the planets move and the practice of astrology, that somehow that movement impacts our, our human lives, uh, those were closely related. It was all part of the study of the Magi. And because of their combined knowledge of science and agriculture, mathematics, and history, their religious and political Uh, Influence continued to grow until they became the most powerful and most prominent group of advisors in the Medo-Persian Empire and subsequently before then the Babylonian Empire. You heard that phrase in the Bible, the law of the Medes and the Persians, the law of the Medes of the Persians, that's mentioned in Daniel and Esther. That was founded on the teachings of the Magi. So it's not strange, therefore, that they were referred to as wise men. Now, that's a little bit about who the Magi were. When we get to what they did and what their responsibilities were, we start to see why they traveled to Jerusalem. Historians tell us that no Persian no Persian was ever able to become king without mastering the scientific and religious disciplines of the Magi. They had to be taught and trained by the Magi. And then it was the Magi who approved of them and crowned them as king. In short, the Magi were king makers. They weren't we three kings we sing, but they were king makers. In Persia, they had absolute say who would become the king and how the king had to be trained and was prepared to be king. And in verse 13 of Esther chapter 1 also indicates that the Magi controlled the judicial appointments of the land. Next to the king whom they appointed, the Magi were the most powerful men in the Persian Empire. And then we learn from the book of Daniel that the Magi were among the highest ranking officials in Babylon. Because the Lord gave Daniel the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, remember that? Nobody else could do it and uh, give the interpretation, and Nebuchadnezzar was going to say off with their heads to all of them, and uh, Daniel was given the the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, dream, and so Daniel gave the interpretation to Nebuchadnezzar, and Daniel was appointed as ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men or the magi of Babylon. Daniel is made head of the magi. And incidentally, when Daniel was named ruler over Babylon, Belshazzar put a gold necklace over, over Daniel's head. That's, that's another indication of gold royalty. And because of his great wisdom and because he had successfully pleaded for the lives of the wise men who had failed to interpret the king's dream, Daniel became highly regarded among the Magi and was, in fact, their chief when he was in, in Babylon. So when we start to talk about why did the Magi journey to Jerusalem, we start with the influence of the prophet Daniel. Because of Daniel's high position, great respect among them, it seems certain that the Magi learned much from that prophet about the one true God, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and about his plan and his his will for his people through the coming of the glorious king. And because most of the Jews remained in in Babylon after the exile and intermarried with the people of the east, the Jewish messianic influence remained strong in that region even until New Testament times. So there would have been something about the star that the Magi saw in the east that began to connect the dots for them. Concerning their knowledge what they had received from Daniel with the significance of the star, they knew that the one prophesied by Daniel the prophet had been born, had been born. And so what did the Magi learn about the king of the Jews from the writings of Daniel? Let's turn for a moment to Daniel chapter 7, the 13th verse. The 13th verse of Daniel chapter 7. If you haven't been to Daniel for a while, I believe it follows right after Ezekiel. Yeah, Ezekiel is a pretty long book. You can find that (laughs) you get to Daniel right after that. In the 7th chapter of Daniel, Daniel is given a vision of some great and horrible beasts that represent the kingdoms of the earth. And then there's this great and terrifying beast that was destroyed and the rest of the beast had their dominion taken away for some time. So there's these great and horrible kingdoms of the world and then there's this great and terrifying kingdom of the world that was destroyed and the rest of them had their dominion taken for, uh, away for a while. And uh, beginning in verse 13, we see what the Magi learned of the king of the Jews from, from what Daniel wrote. And it can be summed up in these two verses, 13 and 14, because what we see and understand is here is the second coming of Jesus Christ, his second coming. When he's going to establish his kingdom on earth for a thousand years. And the, the great beast was destroyed. That would have been the, the, the beast, the Antichrist. And uh, his kingdom is destroyed. And the other kingdoms, they have their dominion taken away for a time. Because that's the thousand year reign of Christ. But the Magi didn't know all that we know. Because we have the New Testament. So they would have seen verses 13 and 14 as referring to to the king of kings, the one who is coming, as prophesied by by Daniel. And uh, Daniel says in verse 13, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. In connecting the dots, the Magi knew that the Son of Man prophesied by Daniel had been born. It's time to load up the candles, camels, candles, load up the candles and the camels and and take gold to present to him to worship him. This is the time that the glorious King of the Jews had been born as Daniel predicted. And more than likely, the Magi also had the prophecies of Isaiah. Because we know that Daniel had them. He had the prophecies of Jeremiah. He would have had the prophecies of Daniel. He would have shared those with, with the other Magi in his time. And so, especially the one that we read this morning, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. Beginning at the sixth verse of Isaiah chapter 9. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. This is the child whom the Magi came and sought to worship. So with that, let's go back to Matthew chapter 2 again. Matthew chapter 2, beginning at the verse 1, and what we've talked about, uh, we we see all this coming together now in the account here. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. So Herod devised a scheme to kill whoever this new person or new king might be. Herod had already killed dozens of people, hundreds of people in his lifetime. This was was just one more. So he devised a scheme to find out where he was to be born and uh, so he could take him out. Verse 4, Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined for them the exact time the star appeared. That's so he could determine how old this baby might be, how old this so-called king of the Jews might be. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. Lie. (laughs) Herod had no intention of worshiping the child. But Herod's statement here reveals something that the Magi had come for more than political purposes. More than political. These particular Magi came to worship. We have come to worship him. What does that mean? Not only did the Magi consider the child to be born king of the Jews, they considered the child to be divine, to be God. To be the son of man from, the, from Daniel. God come in the flesh. The mighty God. Worthy of worship. Verse 9. After hearing the king, they went their way. And the star which they had seen in the east went on before them. Until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Uh, in the Greek, it just piles... Joy upon joy upon joy. Joy, great joy, exceeding joy, joy. <laughs> and so uh, imagine what that would look like. Now, after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother. And they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. The Apostle Paul wrote in in 1 Timothy chapter 6 to, to Timothy that the Lord Jesus Christ is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. If King Solomon, who may have been the greatest king in the history of the world, I don't think you can find another one greater than King Solomon. If he was worthy of the homage that all the other rulers of the earth paid to him, how much more so is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. At his birth, Jesus was given gold, a gift fit for a king. You see, when you come to Jesus Christ, you come to him as king. You come to him as Lord. You know, oftentimes we tell people, you need to make Jesus the Lord of your life. No, you don't make Jesus the Lord of your life. He is Lord. He is king. You know, we need to submit to him and his his lordship. He has the right to reign in your life and he's worthy of your worship. But I can't help stop and think about the fact that the true king, the true king of Israel was not known in Jerusalem. His own city. In his own royal residence where the throne of David was at, the place where of all places he should have been hailed as king, he he was not. They didn't seek him. They didn't care about him. Herod and the chief priest and the scribes, when they read what it said from Micah, where he used to be born, they didn't go down to Bethlehem to find this baby. They, they didn't even bother. Of course, Herod concocted a, a scheme. But nobody went to Bethlehem to see what this is all about. You know, Bethlehem was only five and a half miles from Jerusalem. That's from here to Butteview School and back. (laughs) Do you think you can make that trip? (laughs) You know, I've made it on my bike dozens of times. Got to a point I couldn't make it up the hill on my bike, but but I I could still push. I I could still, still get there. But not even the common people bothered. The Magi asked all over Jerusalem, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And none of them even thought, having heard that question and seeing these guys decked out and how were the Magi dressed, which would have been impressive, none of them followed them to Bethlehem. You know, none of them said, well, we've got to follow these guys and see, see where the king of the Jews is at. You know, they didn't bother. And what did they miss? They missed everything. They missed everything. God brought a few shepherds in. We know that story. The common people, the leaders, the rulers, the theologians, and the priests of Israel were completely indifferent. And then there was Herod, filled with bitterness and hatred and envy and jealousy. As I mentioned, the worship of the Magi is the first act of worship recorded in the New Testament. And so, right here at the very beginning of Matthew's Gospel, the beginning of our New Testament, we see the way that it's going to be. The way it's going to be with the king of kings until he comes again to reign on this earth. There are going to be those people who are completely indifferent. And that's probably most people. Most people of the world. There are going to be those people who are antagonistic and don't want to hear about it and are very spiteful against it. And then there's going to be those people who are worshipful. Those people who are worshipful. And I thank God that we are the worshipful people in this place this morning, anticipating, celebrating the birth of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Shall we pray? Father, I, I know that we covered a lot of history and geography and a lot of other things this morning, Lord, but I, I just pray that as, we've, as I put it into context of what was going on at that time and we can see very similar things going on in our own time, Lord, and I just pray that in people's hearts and their minds this Christmas season that you will break through that indifference, and, Father, where people are antagonistic towards Christ and Christianity, that you will break through that as well, Father. We all know people who fit into these different categories. We all have family that fit into to these different categories. They're either indifferent, they're antagonistic, or they're, they're worshipful, Lord. And I pray that uh, you will use the true message of this season of the year, Father, that through your Holy Spirit, Father, people will come to understand Jesus Christ as their Savior, as their King, as their Lord. The one who died for them on the cross. That they might serve and worship the King of Kings for all eternity. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.